Hello, and welcome to a Baha'i Conversation. My name is Anthony Naimi. And I'm Michael Sabat. We started a Baha'i Conversation as a way to enrich our own understanding of the Baha'i writings, to share some of the insights from those writings, and hopefully to spark further Baha'i Conversations. In each episode, we look at a particular dimension of the teachings of the Baha'i Faith, explore how it relates to ideas and society at large, and discuss how it might serve the needs of humanity today. Today's episode commemorates the centenary of the ascension of Abdu'l-Bahá, the center of the covenant of Baha'u'lláh, and one of the three central figures of the Baha'i faith. He passed from this world on November 28, 1921, but his impact on the Baha'i faith and, in the Baha'i view, on the very course of human history was and remains inestimable. As part of this commemoration, Baha'is all over the world have created artistic tributes to Abdu'l-Bahá. We encourage you to go to www.baha'i.org to see some of these, including a beautiful film about his life and work titled Exemplar. We'll include more specific links in the show notes. This podcast episode is our own contribution to the centenary. It interweaves stories from the life of Abdu'l-Bahá with some reflections on his station. To begin this episode, we will briefly consider the Baha'i view of religion. Baha'is believe that religion is the force that impels civilization forward. But how exactly do we translate the revealed word of God into civilizational advancement? We will reflect on how for Baha'is, Abdu'l-Baha's station helps to answer this age-old question in a new and powerful way. We'll look at three specific roles that Abdu'l-Baha plays in the Baha'i faith. First, Abdu'l-Baha is the center of Baha'u'llah's covenant, the architect and focal point of the new order revealed by his father, the manifestation of God for this day. Second, Abdu'l-Baha is the infallible interpreter of his father's message, a being uniquely capable of receiving that message and bearing its weight. And third, he is the perfect exemplar of his father's faith, created to embody and perfectly actualize every implication of the revealed word for how a human being should live. Abdu'l-Bahá holds other titles, of course, and there will always be something artificial about separating out three distinct roles that, in actuality, were lived seamlessly by one whose life showed no trace of fragmentation. But as always, our hope is that whatever is shared in this episode will inspire further reflection and investigation. The lessons, insights, and inspiration to be drawn from the study of the life of Abdu'l-Bahá can never be exhausted. Let us begin with a moment in time, a span of two days that, when they happened, went unnoticed by the human race, but which laid the foundations for a spiritual and material revolution in its collective life. May 24th, 1844. The inventor Samuel Morse, sitting in the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., sends a telegraphic message quoting a verse from the Bible. What hath God wrought? The message travels at the speed of electricity, reaching its destination in Baltimore almost 40 miles away in less than the blink of an eye. Until now, various telegraphic technologies have been little more than curiosities. But after this successful proof of concept for truly long-distance electronic communication, Morse's telegraph will soon interconnect the globe. The world does not know it, 
But this transmission of a millennia-old question has ushered in the modern age. Human thought has, until this date, traveled at the speed of horse, wind, or steam engine. Now it will travel at nearly the speed of light. The world has shrunk and grown. In the decades to come, the significance of this moment will become clear to people all over a world increasingly interconnected by the mechanisms of modern communication. What hath God wrought indeed? But God had also wrought something else. Another event had occurred on precisely the day before Morse's message was sent, an event whose implications for the life of humanity may prove even more far-reaching, though it remains relatively little known. In the Persian city of Shiraz, halfway across the world from Washington and Baltimore, in the hours before dawn on May 23rd, a young merchant announces to his first disciple that he is the Bob, a messenger from God, appearing in fulfillment of millenarian expectation and heralding the coming of another, greater messenger. This next messenger is Baha'u'llah, and the Bob's declaration marks the beginning of the Baha'i faith and a new cycle in religious history. As if in anticipation of the question Morse will transmit the next day, the Bob reveals what God has wrought. He has fulfilled his ancient promise and sent the message that will usher in the time foretold by seers and prophets of old, when the kingdom of God will be built here on earth. The Bob's message, and even more so that of Baha'u'llah of which it is the seed, will radically upend our understanding of religion itself, giving it a new vital power that will, Baha'is believe, allow it to eventually reshape our planet into one harmonious community. This message not only affirms the fundamental oneness of humanity, as discussed in one of our earlier episodes, but provides the mechanisms for realizing that oneness and allowing humanity to harness, in unity, the power of its diversity. Writing a century later, Shori Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, would often remind the Baha'i community that in commemorating this great holy day, the Declaration of the Bab, they should not lose sight of one other event that occurred on that historic evening. The date's significance, he would explain, lay not only in the declaration of the Bab and the inception of the Baha'i cycle, but also in the birth of Abdu'l-Baha, a figure unique in religious history. For on the night of May 23, 1844, Nawab, the wife of Baha'u'llah, gave birth to a son. He was named Abbas. Baha'u'llah would call him Agha, the master. But the designation he would choose for himself was that of the servant of Baha, Abdul Baha. To unpack why the birth of Abdul Baha should be considered so significant, let us return to something we said at the outset of this episode. Abdul Baha's station can be considered important not only for the Baha'i faith or even for religious history but for the course of human civilization itself. To help make sense of this statement and to introduce the three roles of center of the covenant, infallible interpreter, and perfect exemplar, let us reflect for a moment on the purpose of religion in the life of humanity and on some of the challenges or pitfalls religions have faced in fulfilling that purpose. In the Baha'i understanding, 
Human civilization is driven forward by the periodic release into the world of a new spiritual force. Some might think of this in abstract terms, but it has an undeniably tangible component at its core. The revealed word of God, which the manifestation speaks or dictates or writes down in his own hand. This word is at the core of the phenomenon that we call religion. The manifestation of God, Christ, Muhammad, the Buddha, Baha'u'llah, lives a mortal life and then departs. What is left is the word. And words do not act of their own accord. They rely on institutions built around them, communities animated by them, and ultimately individuals who try to translate their understanding of the word into thoughts, speech, and action. With the direct living guidance of the manifestation gone, how is the community to know what to do with the word? How, in other words, is it to translate the word of God into actions that drive civilization forward? If we think of a revelation as a flood of life-giving water, the question is how to channel that water so that its force is not dissipated, nor its purity sullied. For Baha'is, this point is not incidental or peripheral. The adequacy of the channel will shape how the waters of revelation flow. There are at least three dimensions to consider here. First, how is the community to understand what the word means? Who can interpret it? And what do we do when interpretations vary? Second, who is to make decisions about the direction of the community going forward? And who is to make decisions on matters that are not made explicit in the revealed word? Third, who is to show the community what the word looks like in practice? Is each individual to carry out the commandments and counsels found in the revealed word as they best can? Or is there some living example they can look to as a guide? There are suggestions in religious history that the manifestations of God have provided answers to at least some of these questions, if the community is willing to listen. Catholics would suggest that Christ points to Peter as the focal point of guidance by designating him as the rock upon which he will build his church. And Shiite Muslims generally agree that Muhammad designated Ali as his successor. Whatever we make of these claims, whose validity might be genuinely difficult for an outside observer to assess centuries later, the guidance of Baha'u'llah in this respect was indisputable. In his own writing, he designated his eldest son, Abdu'l-Baha, as the center of his covenant and defined the parameters of this designation. Akka, 1892. Harazullah Samandari is on pilgrimage to the presence of Baha'u'llah. One day, he will be appointed a hand of the cause of God. And having lived to see the election of the first Universal House of Justice in 1963, will awe Baha'i listeners with his recollections of being in the presence of the manifestation of God more than seven decades earlier. But for now, he is only a youth of 16. And today he is accompanying Abdul Baha. The master, who still lives in the city of Akka, where he manages all the affairs of the Baha'i community, is going to see his father, Baha'u'llah, who lives a few kilometers away at the mansion of Bachi. There are no modern roads here, only dirt paths that turn to mud when it rains, as it has today. But Abdu'l-Baha goes on foot. 
At the last turn of the road, the mansion comes into sight. Before taking another step, Abdu'l-Bahá prostrates himself, laying his forehead on the wet ground. The young Tarazullah Samandari sees with his own eyes how Abdu'l-Bahá relates to his father. The word reverence cannot do justice to it. And on this pilgrimage, he also gets to see how Baha'u'llah relates to his son. Whenever Baha'u'llah, looking out from the mansion, would see that Abdu'l-Bahá was approaching, he would tell all those in his presence to go to meet Abdu'l-Bahá and to escort him the rest of the way. Once, after a period of a few days when he has not been in Baha'u'llah's presence, Mr. Samandari asks one of the children in the household to take a message to Baha'u'llah, asking for the bounty of seeing him. Once he is ushered into Baha'u'llah's presence, the manifestation asks, Do you not meet the Master every day? Mr. Samandari says that he does. Then why do you speak of not having been here in my presence for several days, you who meet the Master every day and receive the honor of his company? This story is related in Hassan Baliuzi's biography of Abdu'l-Bahá. Baliuzi concludes the story by pointing out that Baha'u'llah, the manifestation of God, equated meeting Abdu'l-Bahá with meeting himself. The first facet of Abdu'l-Bahá's station that we will explore is this. He was the center of Baha'u'llah's covenant. A covenant is an agreement. The covenant of Baha'u'llah can be thought of as an agreement between Baha'u'llah and his followers. They will follow those whom Baha'u'llah appoints as his successors. He, for his part, will guide those successors. The first of those successors appointed by Baha'u'llah was Abdu'l-Bahá, whom he designated as the sole authority in the Baha'i faith after him. After Abdu'l-Bahá's own passing, his appointed successor, Shawri Effendi, would lead the worldwide Baha'i community, while today, as anticipated by Baha'u'llah, the Universal House of Justice, an elected body, is the source of unifying leadership and guidance for Baha'is worldwide. However, the designation of center of the covenant belongs to Abdu'l-Bahá. The importance of the concept of the covenant in the Baha'i faith and of Abdu'l-Bahá's role as its center can hardly be overstated. Let's consider why this is so. In his writings, Baha'u'llah likens the human race to the human body. It is a rich metaphor. Individual cells, tissues, and organs in a body must be united in order for the body to be sound. A center is needed to give order and coordinate the functions of the whole body. It is the same with humanity. We cannot have uniformity. That would be like having a body composed of only one type of cell. But nor can our diversity, our diverse individual goals and ways of thinking and acting, be permitted to tear the body apart. There must be an order to humanity, an organizing principle that allows us to channel the creative power inherent in our diversity. For Baha'is, the covenant is this organizing principle, and Abdu'l-Bahá, as its center, shows us that this principle can be rooted in love, and this center can lead through humble encouragement rather than coercion. Those who followed Abdu'l-Bahá, who acknowledged his station as the center of Baha'u'llah's covenant, and who strove to learn from his words and example, found that this was the path to order and harmony with their fellow human beings, 
and that it was also a path to freedom. These two ideas, order and freedom, often seem to be in tension with each other. Let's explore this tension and then consider how Abdu'l-Bahá and the Covenant may point to a resolution. In the modern world, freedom is one of the ideas that has most captured our imaginations. Freedom has been described as a common aspiration of all peoples. But most of us would also accept that complete individual freedom can quickly lead to chaos and confusion. We need some system of order in society to put boundaries around people's freedoms. But how do we find the right balance between order and freedom? And how can we hope to agree on that balance? Some of us might argue that we still have the balance too far on the side of order. History can be seen as a grim record of humanity's tendency to construct tyrannical systems in which secular or clerical authorities arrogate powers to themselves that limit human freedoms, even to the point of abusing what we would today consider innate human rights. It is indisputable that many of these systems survive today. And so it's possible to read the story of the present world as the story of a continuing struggle to perfect human freedom. On the other hand, some of us might argue that freedom has, at least in some ways, advanced too far, leading to certain characteristically modern problems for individuals and communities. As freedom has advanced, order seems to have eroded, not only oppressive orders, but the orders that give meaning and structure to our external and internal lives. This is a problem. From an external perspective, human groups, from local communities to humanity as a whole, are facing collective problems that clearly require coordination, more or at least more effective coordination than we seem capable of generating at present. Climate change is the best example of such a problem. The more we commit to individualistic ideologies, the less capable we seem to be of finding the collective will needed to make the difficult choices required to solve the problem. When a ship is sinking, the most pressing need is for a coordinated response to plug the leak and bail out the water not for each group or individual in the crew to simply do what they want. And what about the loss of a sense of order in our internal lives? Most people of the world remain committed to essentially religious worldviews, which give them a sense of their own place in the world and meaning to their lives. But in much of the world, these worldviews have retreated in the modern period. Many people have abandoned them, and for those who retain them, they often play a smaller role in their lives than in ages past. From an internal perspective, the loss of a sense of order creates the malaise characteristic of modernity, diagnosed as follows by the poet Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Considered from this internal perspective, it is far from clear that the radical individualistic freedom that has become a guiding goal in much of the modern world has fulfilled its promise to promote human flourishing. The individual, unshackled to any metaphysical system, any order, comes to conclude that the universe is purposeless. And what are her options in the face of such a universe? They might include nihilism, a Nietzschean attempt at self-assertion, the hopeless courage of existentialism, or, of course, a retreat to some kind of order, but now only out of an aesthetic need or cultural sense of belonging not out of fundamental conviction in the order's truth. Perhaps the most common solution for those of us without any conviction about our place in the cosmic order 
is simply to try not to think about it too much. And here, our freedom is a willing helper. We are free to buy things, to entertain ourselves, to pursue whatever can be bought with money, to distract ourselves from the big question, why? Is there a way out of these problems, the old problems of oppression that are still with us, and the new problems of unbridled freedom? Is a harmonious balance between freedom and order possible? Can we find an order that not only creates social harmony, but empowers individuals, rather than either oppressing them through its strictness or leaving them adrift through its looseness? And even beyond these practical results, can we find a social order that we can affirm as true because it accurately reflects our underlying individual and collective reality? Let's start with the last question first. Can we find an order that reflects the reality of the human race, that speaks to its real needs because it is rooted in an accurate understanding of what humanity is? In the face of this problem, Baha'u'llah has asserted the reality of the oneness of humanity. We've talked about this principle before on the podcast. To quickly summarize, Baha'u'llah isn't simply saying that the oneness or unity of humanity is a goal that we should work towards or an idea that will help us. He is also saying that it is the truth. To understand the difference, we can think about other realities that are true regardless of whether we recognize their truth. For instance, humanity is inextricably connected to and reliant on the natural world. This is a truth, whether we recognize it or not. In other words, whether we live in harmony with nature or not. But Baha'u'llah has gone further. He has given us a prescription for recognizing and learning to act on the underlying truth of the oneness of humanity. He has created the blueprint of a social order designed precisely to allow the spiritual reality of oneness to find expression as a social reality. And key to this order is his covenant, at whose center is Abdu'l-Bahá. As the center of the covenant, Abdu'l-Bahá instructed the Baha'i community, setting its goals and providing guidance on how to advance towards them. This function was later taken on by his successor, Shari Effendi, and today by the Universal House of Justice, as mandated by Baha'u'llah himself. And here we see the Baha'i answer to the other question, how to create an order that fosters social harmony and also empowers individuals. It is the existence of a singular point of ongoing living guidance that unifies the Baha'i community, giving it not only order, but vital purpose, galvanizing it on the path forward. And this is order without coercion. There is no mechanism in this system by which the center of the covenant can make someone act. The method is instead to teach. Guidance flows from the center of the covenant, raising the consciousness of the individual and the community who responds as their understanding grows. This is beautifully illustrated in the recollections of Howard Colby Ives, an American who wrote about his time spent in the presence of Abdu'l-Bahá. While Ives is describing his own process of spiritual transformation through his interaction with the person of Abdu'l-Bahá, what he says also holds insight for the way in which Abdu'l-Bahá channeled the power of the covenant, expressing that power as a constant stream of love and guidance. 
In all of my many opportunities of meeting, of listening to, and talking with Abdul Baha, I was impressed and constantly more deeply impressed with his method of teaching souls. That is the word. He did not attempt to reach the mind alone. He sought the soul, the reality of everyone he met. Oh, he could be logical, even scientific, in his presentation of an argument, as he demonstrated constantly in the many addresses I have heard him give and the many more I have read. But it was not the logic of the schoolman, nor the science of the classroom. His lightest word, his slightest association with the soul, was shot through with an illuminating radiance which lifted the hearer to a higher plane of consciousness. Our hearts burned within us when he spoke. And he never argued, of course, nor did he press a point. He left one free. There was never an assumption of authority. Rather, he was ever the personification of humility. He taught as if offering a gift to a king. He never told me what I should do, beyond suggesting that what I was doing was right. Nor did he ever tell me what I should believe. He made truth and love so beautiful and royal that the heart perforce did reverence. He showed me, by his voice, manner, bearing, smile, how I should be, knowing that out of the pure soil of being, the good fruit of deeds and words would surely spring. We see from this glimpse of Abdu'l-Baha how the idea of leadership is radically transformed by Baha'u'llah's covenant. Here we see leadership through love, education, and the attractive force of example rather than coercion based on material power. Almost everyone who has shared their remembrances of Abdu'l-Baha has noted the paradox inherent in his way of being in the world. His leadership was unquestionable. He personified majesty, and yet he was the essence of humility, its paragon and perfect embodiment. He was Allah, the master, because he was Abdu'l-Baha, the servant. This is, Abdu'l-Baha himself declared, my firm, my unshakable conviction, the essence of my unconcealed and explicit belief, a conviction and belief which the denizens of the Abha kingdom fully share. The blessed beauty, Baha'u'llah, is the son of truth, and his light, the light of truth. The Bab is likewise the son of truth, and his light, the light of truth. My station is the station of servitude, a servitude which is complete, pure, and real, firmly established, enduring, obvious, explicitly revealed, and subject to no interpretation whatever. I am the interpreter of the Word of God. Such is my interpretation. The importance of freedom arises again when we consider the next facet of Abdu'l-Baha's station, which is his station as the infallible interpreter of Baha'u'llah's words. The Baha'i scholar Adib Taherzadeh, in speaking about the station of Abdu'l-Baha, suggests that we might think of a revelation from God as the water of life. When a manifestation arrives, this water falls from heaven and gathers in a pool. Now, in previous dispensations, many people came to the pool to take the water, but in doing so, they sullied it. Different people interpreted the word in different ways and quarreled with each other. Divisions arose, and the intended meanings of the word were often lost, like pure water contaminated with dust and dirt. 
It was still life-giving, of course, but it had lost something of its original purity and clarity. Teherzadeh goes on to suggest that in this dispensation, Baha'u'llah did not give the revelation directly to humanity. He built a wall around the pool of his revelation, and this wall was Abdu'l-Bahá. By designating Abdu'l-Bahá as the sole authorized interpreter of his word during his lifetime, he ensured that differences in understanding would not lead to divisions, and erroneous interpretations by well-meaning but fallible individuals would not obscure the revelation. And this protection continued after Abdu'l-Bahá's passing. Abdu'l-Bahá appointed Shoghi Effendi as the authorized interpreter after him. With Shoghi Effendi's passing, there is now no person capable of authoritatively interpreting the word. It is indisputable that the interpretations and elucidations of Abdu'l-Bahá and Shoghi Effendi have enriched humanity's access to the revelation of Baha'u'llah. They have opened up new vistas of thought, shone light on truths inherent in the revelation that the rest of us, unaided, would either never have found or, if someone had found them, would never have been able to agree upon. However, if we think back to this image of the wall around the pool, we might wonder whether the wonderful interpretations of Abdu'l-Bahá and Shari Effendi come at the cost of restricted freedom for the rest of us. Why do we need authorized interpreters? Can we not each relate to the revelation on our own terms? But considered in the context of history, it becomes clear that the appointment of these two authorized interpreters has allowed a freedom unknown in prior ages of religious history, while preserving unity in a way that religious communities today more than ever find elusive. Consider what has typically happened in older religions, where, regardless of what the manifestation might have intended, a small class of religious elites, clerics, priests, and so on, sooner or later monopolized the function of interpretation. When someone disagreed with their interpretation, that person would often be persecuted. Sometimes their only option was to create their own sect of the religion, where this new interpretation would be considered correct. Today, thankfully, in much of the world, people are no longer persecuted for doctrinal religious differences. However, the freedom to individually pursue the truth has largely meant the abandonment of any hope of unity, even within religions, let alone across them. Where unity remains, it is still often based on the old model of relying on a subset of the community to tell all the rest what the scripture means. But in many places, religion is increasingly becoming a purely individual phenomenon, the possibility of shared understanding and shared undertakings built on such understanding is discounted. The Baha'i community in Abdul Baha's time and continuing today is a living example of another way and a testament to the covenant's power to harmonize and synergize qualities that may in wider society seem paradoxical. Freedom and obedience, creativity and unity, certitude and unending search. By making it clear that no interpretation by anyone other than Abdu'l-Bahá and his chosen successor is authoritative, Baha'u'lláh has, through his covenant, freed humanity to explore his revelation without any fear of entrenching errors or of creating rifts and divisions. While extensive, potent, and crucial, the interpretations of Abdu'l-Bahá and Shoghi Effendi are anything but exhaustive of the meanings and applications of Baha'u'lláh's revelation. 
In some cases, they do point to the single valid meaning of a passage, but more often they are highlighting a particular or key meaning or meanings without ruling out that others may be found. And vast amounts of the revelation are not explicitly interpreted at all. Meanwhile, each of us is encouraged, indeed required, by Baha'u'llah to read his words every day and strive to understand them. And each of us is freed from the burden of imagining that our own understanding or anyone else's is definitive. We can exchange understandings, consult about them, act on them, and build on them and refine them in a spirit of both generosity and humility. There is a subtle aspect to the freedom created by this approach. We are freed from the fetters of a clerical approach to the revelation, but we are also freed from rigid insistence on our own understanding. We can assume, indeed we can know, that we are not infallible, and that our reason and best efforts will always fall short in understanding the revelation, and so we do not become prisoners of our own idle fancies. We instead are free to weigh our conceptions in the balance of experience and consultation. Apart from the freedom this affords each of us, this method of approaching the Baha'i Revelation is epistemologically powerful. In other words, it helps us generate, refine, and share knowledge. The worldwide Baha'i community today, under the guidance of the Universal House of Justice, is in fact learning to engage with the Revelation in an essentially scientific way. Baha'i communities are increasingly working in cycles in which they study the text, act based on their understanding, reflect on the results of this action, and consult together, using their collective wisdom to refine their understanding. No one person's views are considered definitive. Instead, our shared experience of trying to understand and act on the revelation lights the way forward, progressively revealing more and more of its implications and power. This podcast, as an example, is generated in exactly this way. Michael and I start with an idea for an episode, and we sketch out an outline based on our current understanding of the topic. This is action. Then we go to the Baha'i writings and the guidance of the Guardian and the Universal House of Justice, and we find passages that help us clarify and correct our initial ideas. This is study and reflection. Then we create the episode, and the feedback we received from this action step helps us refine further our understanding and also helps us see what topic might be most useful to talk about next. This is more action and more reflection. And throughout this process, we are consulting closely together and with other people. The final product, of course, is in no way definitive. Each episode is doubtless missing things and contains errors, and the way in which the topic is delivered can always be improved. And this is perfectly fine. We can approach the whole enterprise in a spirit of learning. When we think of Abdu'l-Baha's function as an infallible interpreter, we probably tend to focus on his words, what he said and wrote. But while the breadth and depth of his wisdom and knowledge were nothing short of miraculous, Abdu'l-Baha was far, far from being merely a scholar. Not only his words, but his very life were a reflection of the divine. In 1902, Myron Phelps, a lawyer from New York, spent a month in Akka. Here are some of his recollections of Abdu'l-Baha. A door opens and a man comes out. He is of middle stature, strongly built. He wears flowing light-colored robes. 
On his head is a light buff fez with a white cloth wound about it. He is perhaps sixty years of age. His long gray hair rests on his shoulders. His forehead is broad, full, and high. His nose slightly aquiline, his mustache and beard, the latter full though not heavy, nearly white. His eyes are gray and blue, large, and both soft and penetrating. His bearing is simple, but there is grace, dignity, even majesty about his movements. He passes through the crowd and as he goes utters words of salutation. We do not understand them, but we see the benignity and the kindliness of his countenance. He stations himself at a narrow angle of the street and motions to the people to come towards him. For more than 34 years, this man has been a prisoner at Akka, but his jailers have become his friends. The governor of the city, the commander of the army corps, respect and honor him as though he were their brother. No man's opinion or recommendation has greater weight. He is the beloved of all the city, high and low, and how could it be otherwise? For to this man, it is the law as it was to Jesus of Nazareth, to do good to those who injure him. Have we yet heard of anyone in lands which boast the name of Christ who lived that life? Hear how he treats his enemies. One instance of many I have heard will suffice. When the master came to Akka, there lived there a certain man from Afghanistan, an austere and rigid Muslim. To him the master was a heretic. He felt and nourished a great enmity towards the master and roused up others against him. When opportunity offered in gatherings of the people, as in the mosque, he denounced him with bitter words. This man, he said to all, is an impostor. Why do you speak to him? Why do you have dealings with him? And when he passed the master on the street, he was careful to hold his robe before his face that his sight might not be defiled. Thus did the Afghan. The master, however, did thus. The Afghan was poor and lived in a mosque. He was frequently in need of food and clothing. The master sent him both. These he accepted, but without thanks. He fell sick. The master took him a physician, food, medicine, money. These also he accepted. But as he held out one hand that the physician might take his pulse, with the other he held his cloak before his face that he might not look upon the master. For 24 years, the master continued his kindnesses, and the Afghan persisted in his enmity. Then, at last, one day, the Afghan came to the master's door and fell down, penitent and weeping at his feet. Forgive me, sir, he cried. For twenty-four years I have done evil to you. For twenty-four years you have done good to me. Now I know that I have been in the wrong. The master bade him rise, and they became friends. This master is as simple as his soul is great. He claims nothing for himself, neither comfort, nor honor, nor repose. Three or four hours of sleep suffice him. All the remainder of his time and all his strength are given to the succor of those who suffer in spirit or in body. I am, he says, the servant of God. Such is Abbas Effendi, the master of Akka. The last role of Abdu'l-Bahá that we will explore today is this. Abdu'l-Bahá is the perfect exemplar of his father's teachings. He perfectly models the Baha'i pattern of life. The meaning of this role of Abdu'l-Baha for Baha'is can be better appreciated if we think about the great distance between our words and our deeds that all of us must, at some point, recognize in our own lives. Religion claims to call people to close the gap between word and deed. However, 
Despite having so many beautiful ideals and precepts, the leaders and followers of religion alike often fail in living up to the beauty of their ideals. We often struggle to discern any meaningful difference in conduct between those who claim to be followers and those who don't. This contradiction between word and deed, perhaps more than anything else, serves to corrode and undermine the influence of the divine standard held out by religion, which is intended to serve as a beacon to people. As a result, religion in our world has been largely discredited, and many people are particularly cynical of organized religion. The words of religion are not enough to stop this tide of cynicism. Indeed, humanity is tired of words and beautiful ideals that are not lived up to by those who talk about them. As the Universal House of Justice points out, we are left wary for want of a pattern of life to which to aspire. So, can we do anything about this gap between the words of a religion and the deeds of its followers? Or must religion inevitably fall into hypocrisy and discredit? For Baha'is, the example of Abdu'l-Baha shows what a different path can look like, and it keeps us from letting that gap between our words and deeds lead us into either despair or hypocritical complacency. The pattern of Abdu'l-Baha's life has an impact on us, quite distinct from his many teachings and exhortations. While his words are of inestimable value to us, studying his daily actions and his pattern of life provides an entirely different access point to the spirit and purpose of the Baha'i faith. Abdu'l-Baha's life conclusively demonstrates that the gap between words and deeds is not inevitable. And by providing us with this tangible proof, this example of the word being lived, he inspires, motivates, and guides us to reduce that same gap in our own lives as day follows day. When we allow ourselves to be inspired by Abdu'l-Baha's life, he calls us to move beyond a religiosity of beautiful words and ideas to one of deeds performed in the path of God. Seeing the constant evidences of his love for humanity through his daily deeds serves to attract and open our hearts. Because of this, Abdu'l-Baha's example has a unique power to renew our hope in our own capacity to be transformed by the teachings of Baha'u'llah. As we immerse ourselves in Abdu'l-Baha's example, he changes the way we relate to the word of God. We see him acting out the spirit behind the letter. He kindles our longing to understand the inner meanings of the word of God in order to live those meanings. We can think of the impact of Abdu'l-Baha through the lens of a dramatic unfoldment. In high school, for example, many of us had to read plays by Shakespeare. This was difficult work. The language was unusual. The illusions not always clear. This same problem exists in reading religious texts, where the register of language is not always what we're used to. Even more, the very concepts being discussed are not the stuff of everyday life not the set of ideas that we are socialized to, particularly in an increasingly secular society. But how different is it to see a Shakespeare play acted out in front of you by a talented cast of actors, their actions and intonation, the intention they bring with them onto the stage, these give life to the words and reveal their meaning in a completely different way than we got when we simply read the word. To follow this metaphor to its conclusion, Baha'u'llah is the playwright. 
Abdu'l-Baha, the perfect actor who performs with a complete understanding of the playwright's intention behind every word and with utter faithfulness to that intention. It is important to note that for Baha'is, this function of illuminating truth through example remains uniquely and singly Abdu'l-Baha's. Doubtless, we can all be each other's teachers when it comes to deeds and actions, but Abdu'l-Baha was on a different plane. He is the only perfect exemplar of Baha'u'llah's teachings. For Baha'is, Abdu'l-Baha was uniquely prepared by God to guide us through the toils and troubles that would inevitably attend humanity's transition into maturity. Through the compelling power of his wisdom, personality, and insight into his father's purposes, he commanded the attention and channeled the aspirations of the Baha'i community and the world as a whole. His station is a mystery. One of the titles bestowed on Abdu'l-Baha by his father is the mystery of God. And one truly mysterious aspect of Abdu'l-Baha's reality emerges in the following statement from Shoghi Effendi. Speaking of the uniqueness of Abdu'l-Baha, Shoghi Effendi states, in the person of Abdu'l-Baha, the incompatible characteristics of a human nature and superhuman knowledge and perfection have been blended and are completely harmonized. Because of his uniqueness and despite the mystery of his station, Abdu'l-Baha serves as the single point of reference establishing the threshold of Baha'i perfection. His is a force of example that keeps all Baha'is circling in the same orbit and a reference point to which we can collectively turn to find common ground. How remarkable then, how miraculous, but perhaps inevitable, that the same night that witnessed the declaration of the Bab, marking the beginning of the new revelation of God to humanity, also witnessed the birth of the one who, alone, could fully translate that revelation into a perfect human life. No picture of Abdu'l-Baha can be complete, but a final note should be mentioned. There is a risk in all of what's been said that Abdu'l-Baha should seem so lofty, so inaccessible, that the very thought of trying to follow in his footsteps becomes daunting. This should not be so. We could speak here of his great humor, his love, at once fatherly and youthful, for everyone whom he met. But perhaps it suffices to remember that Abdu'l-Baha himself was always, always encouraging those around him to rise just a little higher. This encouragement was of the most gentle, loving kind, expressing his unshakable belief that every one of us absolutely could get closer to the ideal, bit by bit, day by day. He also assured us that even when he is not physically present, he's always there to assist us in our efforts. Abdu'l-Baha's conviction about our nobility and great capacity is reflected in the last story that we'll share today, from near the end of his earthly life, which Shari Effendi relates in God Passes By. Through the dreams he dreamed, through the conversations he held, through the tablets he revealed, it became increasingly evident that his end was fast approaching. Two months before his passing, he told his family of a dream he had had. I seemed, he said, to be standing within a great mosque in the inmost shrine facing the Qibla in the place of the Imam himself. I became aware that a large number of people were flocking into the mosque. More and yet more crowded in, taking their places in rows behind me until there was a vast multitude. 
As I stood, I raised loudly the call to prayer. Suddenly, the thought came to me to go forth from the mosque. When I found myself outside, I said within myself, For what reason came I forth, not having led the prayer? But it matters not. Now that I have uttered the call to prayer, the vast multitude will of themselves chant the prayer.